We're going to go through the book of Hebrews together until the second week-ish of June. And then after that, we're going to do Life of David. And then after that, we're going to go through 1 John. So it's important to go through books of the Bible so that you understand the book. And so our hope is that after we get through Hebrews in these roughly six months, you'll know the book. And you'll be able to think about the book of Hebrews and get it. So in order to do that on the front end, I just want to give you a basic framework by which you can try to at least think about this periodically and understand how the book fits and flows together. So if you need a tagline for the book, here it is. This is found in chapter 7, verse 16. The power of an indestructible life. That's a description of Jesus. The power of an indestructible life. Now, I don't know about you, but I like the thought of being indestructible. And I lived under that illusion for a long time, you know, that I was invincible and indestructible. But I'm learning that through Christ, I can have an indestructible life. Death doesn't have a sting anymore, that I'll be raised to new life, you will too. So the power of an indestructible life is not only a description of Jesus, it's a description of all those that belong to him. So, power of an indestructible life. Next, remember that there are three big warnings in this book. And I just mentioned that to you because I'm going to incorporate those warnings into the section that they're in. So I'm not gonna do one sermon like on the warning. I'm actually gonna bring that warning into the entire section. So last week, we looked at the first few verses and connected that with the first warning of the book in chapter two. We'll do the same thing this week. We're gonna read chapter two, one through four again because this is all part of that first section of the book. So incorporating those three warnings into the flow of the book and the story. Next, as we look at um, this whole year together, I wanna give you six takeaways so that you can think about these on a daily, regular basis if you want to. My intention is that they help build up your gospel reflex because my sense is that you need things to remember, if you're like me, you need things to remember on a daily basis that you can just come to your mind and you can say them in the moment. You know, nobody talks to you more than you. So I wanna tell you what you can say to yourself. And it can have gospel language. So that when that doubt and guilt come in, that challenge comes in, that joy comes in, you can speak the gospel to yourself. So here are six takeaways for the year. Number one, Christ is better. Christ is better. Number two, love is hard. Three, life is full of ups and downs. Four, our hearts are restless until we find rest in Jesus. So if this week, if you find yourself, your heart's restless, you need to look for Jesus because you'll find rest there. Next, number five, warnings are wake-up calls. We all are in constant need of realignment. So warnings are wake-up calls. And last, Christ is enough. Christ is enough. Let me read to you from chapter one, verses four through the end of the chapter, and then the first four verses of chapter two. So listen to this. This is the word of God. 
having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, Lay the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will, not, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. All right, well, if that sounds really weird to jump in and read all that, thanks for enduring. Let's pray and ask God's help, and then let's work our way through this passage together. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, we ask that you, Holy Spirit, would activate us today, that you would open up our ears, that you would open up our hearts. Lord, I don't know what, what everyone's intentions are in coming into your house this morning, but you do. So act on us and open us up so that we might hear your word, so that we might understand it, so that we might be changed by it, so that we might know in the deepest parts of our being that you are our salvation. Would you whisper that to our souls today? Would you build up our confidence in Christ today? Would you do all that for your glory? Would you do it for our good, even if it hurts? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we're thinking about this idea of we, have, we need to fixate on Jesus. Do you remember that? We need to fixate on Jesus. And this week, we get a tangible example of what happens when we do not fixate on Jesus. So, what I want you to know today is I want you to be thinking about fixating on Jesus, because that's always important. But what I want to show you and what we're after today in the section we're looking at is this. Jesus is better. 
That's actually one of our takeaways for the whole year. And the reason it's that way is because over 13 times in this book, God says to us, to the author of Hebrews, Christ is better, Christ is superior. So what I want you to know, what we're after today is that Jesus is better. And we have a tangible example for us to think about when we're thinking about and focusing on and are captivated by something that is less than Jesus. So here are two points. We're gonna look at angels, and we're gonna think about, so what? Got me? Jesus is better. What happens when we focus on something less than Jesus? Here's an example, angels, and so what? So let's jump in. You can tell when you read this section that God speaks a lot about angels. And we probably don't think about angels all that much. We got some kind of weird American views of angels, and that's kind of funky, but, but I don't recognize and I don't hear a lot of talk about angels that much at all. But this passage is wanting us to think about angels. And so in order, before we get into all these verses, I just want to set you up to understand how people in the first century would have thought about angels. Matter of fact, I want you to understand very briefly, not exhaustively, what the Bible says about angels. So if nothing else, you have a sense of what the Bible says in summary form about angels. Here we go. When you think about created order, this is how God created. Angels, mankind, animals. So angels are superior in form to human beings. They're real. Angels are real. They're a little bit above human beings. And here's what else we learn in the scriptures about angels, not just from creation and how God created and where angels are in creation order, but here's some other things. When God's people were at Mount Sinai with Moses, God's people recognized that they received the law of God to Moses and who mediated that to them were angels. We read about that in Deuteronomy 33, uh, Acts 7, and Galatians 3, if that matters to you. So in the first century, when God's talking to us about angels, they would have in mind, especially if they were Jewish, which they were, that was the original audience, that angels are incredibly important because that's how they got the law of God. Yes, it came from God. Yes, Moses brought it to them. But the angels delivered it from God to Moses. So angels are really, really important. Not only that, but there are stories in the scripture about angels helping people understand the significance of redemption. There was a guy named Isaiah, and he was really down and out. As a matter of fact, he was at a really low point. And he was, he, was, he was at that low point, he was actually willing to admit, I'm absolutely undone. To understand something of God and how amazing he is immediately means I have to admit I'm not the greatest. And it was in that moment that an angel reminded Isaiah that his sins were forgiven. The angel didn't forgive him. The angel didn't pay for those sins. The angel simply reminded Isaiah that he was forgiven. Angels hold a really important place in people's minds in the first century. 
Let's fast forward even beyond that. Let's go all the way into the New Testament, which might be a little more familiar to you in thinking about angels. Um, do you remember who it was that announced that the virgin would uh, conceive? An angel. Do you remember who made the announcement at Jesus' birth? An angel. Do you remember when Jesus was in the desert enduring temptation, having not eaten anything for 40 days? Do you remember when he endured that temptation of Satan? Do you remember what happened to him after he endured those temptations? An angel ministered to him. How about that? When Jesus was in the garden before he was to go to the cross, he was in agony. Do you know who comforted him? An angel. Do you remember who announced that he wasn't in the tomb anymore? Hey, you don't need to look for him here. He's alive. Who was that? You're getting a pattern here, aren't you? An angel. When Jesus ascended and went back to the Father, to the throne, an angel was there witnessing and proclaiming what was happening. And an angel's, a legions of angels are said to accompany Christ when he returns. But I want to tell you just a little bit more, so hang in there. Because if all that seems really abstract, let's just keep going. Angels are infatuated with the gospel message. Angels are infatuated with the reality of redemption because what they see is something from a place that we are not and they look down from a different vantage point and see a lot more things than we do. And they are astounded at salvation. First Peter records for us that salvation is something that angels long and love to look into because they are astounded at the grace of God and how powerful God is to redeem a people that God would be willing to die and that God would be willing to redeem enemies. Angels are astounded with that message. And if I can even make it a little more personal, you might not know this, and someone may need to hear this this morning. You have some cheerleaders. They're known as angels. What in the world am I talking about? If you go to Luke 15, what you find is that angels rejoice when people repent. They love it. So if you were here this morning and you read that confession and you meant it, and you even took some time to ponder things that you needed to say to your God who sees everything about you and knows every detail and every motive of your life, and somehow you were able to think of something that you needed to confess. The angels were rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. So if you ever thought repentance is a bad thing, uh-uh, it's what brings joy in heaven. Because when you say that you are weak and need Jesus, heaven is like, yes, Jesus, someone else recognizes it. Someone else recognizes it in a deeper way. So just know, Angels aren't so much there to be your little buddy and to help you out here and there in these weird ways. No, 
angels are about the gospel, they are about God, and they love it when people are embracing the gospel and living into Jesus. So, when God writes the book of Hebrews and is telling us to fixate on Jesus, and we oftentimes don't, we're settling for something less than Jesus, and one of the things that was a temptation in the first century was for people to focus on angels and ascribe to them greater power and greater significance than what they should. So God says, let's set the record straight about angels. So the verses I read for you today, verses four through 14 of chapter one, God wants us to understand how great angels are, but they don't really compare to Jesus, okay? So with that background of what the scripture says about angels, look at these verses. Look at verse four through 14 with me. Because God lays out, here's what you can understand about angels. Here's what's said about angels. Here's what's said about Jesus. So look at this. We're not going to go through all the technicalities in these verses because it's very complex and it would, you'd be lost and it wouldn't really be edifying or helpful. So let's summarize verses 4 through 14. This is what God says about angels. God goes through and gives us seven quotes from the Old Testament. If you want to know about angels, don't listen to country music. If you want to know about angels, go to the Bible. And God says, here's what I say about angels. Here's six quotes from the Psalms, and here's one quote from 2 Samuel. This is how you are to think rightly about angels. So here's what angels do. They are, the text says, they are sent from God. Look at verse 7 and verse 14. God commissions angels to go do his work. So they work on behalf of God. They are sent from God. He commissions them. That's really important. They're not randomized, weird beings that you don't know what they're actually doing or what's going on. No, they're sent by God to do things. They're sent by God to accomplish things. And the Bible even says, even in Hebrews, in chapter 13, that oftentimes we entertain them and we're not even aware of it. Try to take that in. That means more than likely in your life, it's at least possible that you could have been in the presence of an angel, but you probably wouldn't realize it. God sends angels. They are sent to do God's particular work. Look what else is said about angels. Um, they serve. They're not only sent by God, but in verse 14 specifically, it mentions that they serve. They're there to serve God, and they function to help serve you, which you won't always recognize when that is happening. They help with salvation. They help with unfolding the glory and significance of the work of Christ. They actually help unfold salvation. They don't save anyone. They can't accomplish salvation, but they help communicate that message. That's what they do. So if you're hearing the gospel and learning the gospel, somehow in some way, at some point, angels are probably involved because God is about his glory and God is about the gospel. And the angels are about doing God's business and serving God's people. And... That's not a bad thing at all. We should have a high view of angels. But here's what this section says about Jesus. 
So in contrast to angels being sent by God and serving God and serving God's people, here's what God says by comparison about Jesus. Look at verse four or five. To which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son? God has never said about any angel that they qualify as his son. So God is making a distinction. Angels are important. They're sent by God. They serve. But Jesus is the son. He is the son of God. And that is a completely different category from angels. And that is a much better and more glorious category than angels. So that Jesus is better than the angels. As significant as angels may be, Jesus is the only son of God. If you look at verse nine, you find something else out about Jesus that God says from the scriptures. He is more anointed than anyone else, meaning that he has the Holy Spirit upon him. And to be the anointed one means that he is the Messiah. Because that's what Messiah means, the anointed one. God has never said that an angel is a Messiah or could be the Messiah. Jesus alone is the Son of God, and Jesus alone is the Messiah. And again, that is far superior to any angel will ever be. And a couple more things God says about Jesus in comparison to angels. His Son belongs on the throne. God has never said that angels belong on the throne. They are sent from the throne. But Jesus, as the Son of God and the Messiah, is seated at the throne. His home base, if you will, belongs in the throne. The throne is, if you remember, the one reference point for all of reality. And who belongs on that throne? God and his Son, Jesus. And look at what it says in verse 13. Jesus is on this throne, and please take this in. Quoting from the Old Testament, showing us how amazing and superior Jesus is to angels. Jesus is not just on the throne, but guess what? He's going to rule until all of his enemies are made his footstool. Do you see that? And if you're at this point thinking, I don't know what you're talking about, and this is ridiculous, just hang in there. But let me, let me, mention, let me just throw this out for you as something to think about. If Jesus is on the throne and reigning until all of his enemies are made his footstool, are you optimistic about the future? Because if he's reigning until all of his enemies are made his footstool, if you are pessimistic about the future, you're not understanding that Christ is ruling. You see the point? Christ is ruling, advancing his cause, advancing his kingdom, advancing his church, advancing the gospel, and nothing can stop it. And his people, because he is Jesus, because he's the Messiah, because he's on the throne, have incredible amounts of optimism. And at the same time, can expect persecution. That is a weird way to live, isn't it? And yet, It's the way God wants us to live. Understanding that the kingdom of evil will continue to grow, understanding that we will suffer, and at the same time knowing that that suffering is never pointless because our Christ is on the throne advancing his purposes. 
And we can be optimistic about that and hopeful and positive and looking for his kingdom to continue to grow and gain and gain and gain and gain. And oh, by the way, did you notice around verse 9? God says, quoting from the scripture, that angels are supposed to worship Jesus. The Bible never says that Jesus is supposed to worship angels. We're never commanded to worship angels. We're commanded to worship Jesus. And the angels are even commanded to worship Jesus. Maybe you remember this old hymn. Angels help us to adore him. You behold him face to face. Remember that? When we sing those kinds of words, we're following exactly the order of what God says in his, in his word. That angels are there to help us and serve God. And they're there to worship Jesus with us because Jesus is so superior to anything and everything else. So, I guess that means it brings us to this. So what? So what? Why? I don't see how this passage has any relevance for my life at all. I wasn't looking for a little summary about angels. Don't really care. Nice to know they're up there. Nice to know they're doing something. But you told me that I probably won't even know it when, they, when I experience them. So what in the world does this have to do with me? So what? Why does this make any difference in my life at all? Look, I know that this may not seem relevant or applicable to your situation at all, but this is the point. We are bent toward being captivated by something or someone less than Jesus. You get it? The point is that we can take a good thing like angels and begin to think that they're more significant than Jesus. The point is that we're bent toward being captivated by something less than what we could be captivated by. The point is that we're bent toward being enthralled with something that can even be good, but it still pales in comparison to Jesus and who he is and what God has said about him. You see, we do this all the time, right? Let's just think about little quick hits that we do, quick ways that we do this. Um, anybody ever played a sport in here before and you actually, looking back on it, realized you really like the swag and the merch more than the actual game? <laughs> yeah, you're supposed to enjoy the game and developing your skills and understanding fundamentals and, and just enjoying playing the game. But looking back, it really was, man, I like the merch. I like what it says about me. Right? Well, what, what about it professionally? Any, anyone looking back, because for sure this isn't happening now with any of us, it couldn't. We enjoy the title and the prestige, not so much the responsibility. Not so much the hardship that comes with it. Love the title, love the page, love the prestige, but can complain night and day about the challenge. You ever... You ever miss that main thing for something lesser? See what I mean? You like the car because it looks great. I don't need to check out the engine. It just looks good. Let me tell you, you're settling for something lesser because that car may look great, but inside, you don't do the work to research the engine and all that's going on in there. Who cares if the car looks good if it doesn't run? 
Anybody ever been tempted to buy a house and you were like, that's the one? And looking back, you could say with honesty, I really like that house because of how it looked or where it was located. And then you did the inspection, found out the bones were bad. You ever had that temptation to where you end up being more drawn to something that is less significant than what the main thing is? Even if those things that are less significant are supposed to help you understand and be more thankful for the main thing that we're supposed to focus on? You get it? We struggle with this all the time. We are bent toward being captivated by something that is lesser and we miss it. Hmm. Reminds us of the warning, doesn't it? Remember chapter two, verses one through four? Big warning. Big warning. This is what God says. You've heard the message. Look at verse one of chapter two. You've heard the message, but what's happening is we drift, right? We drift. We, we know about Jesus, we understand things about Jesus, but it's easier to drift through life. It's easier to just live life just drifting around. Yeah, I like Jesus, but I'm just drifting. We are bent toward being captivated by something less than Jesus. And it can be a good thing like angels. They're good. I know some of them aren't good, but I'm not talking about that this morning. Okay? If you wonder about that, we can talk about that separately. But God's bringing our attention to, to the good angels. You see, we're prone to this exact same problem. We are prone to love lesser things. It's in all of us. We're bent that way. So what is it that you're enamored by? What is it that we're so easily fixating on? That's less than Jesus. What is it? Even if it's a good thing. Here's some things I thought about this week. Where, where does your mind wander when you're still or quiet? You want to figure out what your heart is really fixating on? Where does your mind wander when you're quiet or when you're still? Where does your mind go? Fear? Control? I don't know, where, where does it go? I know it's very easy for us not to be still, right? But if you ever take the time to discipline yourself, to actually be still, where does your mind wander? That'll help us understand what we're drawn to. Um, you ever notice that we have the tendency to focus on issues that we think we can control? You ever notice that? You ever noticed how you can fixate on things that you think that you can control? Here's some examples for me. Parenting. How about even times our profiles? We can fixate on that because we think we can control it. Here's what people are going to think about me. Here's how people are going to see me. Here's what people are going to derive from this picture, derive from this, from that. If I get my profile right, oh man, people will think a certain way about me. How about investments? Your mind ever wonder toward what you're really invested in? I'm not just talking financial here, I'm talking about where you're invested and why you're invested. Your mind ever wonder that way? Thinking about those things, 
fixating on those things, your emotions coming out high or low based upon those things that you think you can control? That's how we're fixating on something less than Jesus. Here's a list I came up with this week. I think that we are, have a tendency to be fixated on things that are temporary, things that we can throw away. We love it. We love to live in a world in which things can be temporary. and We, we don't like it, just throw it away. Be gone with it. Flush it, move on. You ever find yourself fixating on temporary things? You don't want to think too long about anything. Doesn't work, flush it, go away, bye. Instant fixes. We, we can be enthralled by instantaneous fixes. If there's a problem and we can't instantaneously fix it, how mad do you get? How mad do I get? Oftentimes problems take a little bit longer to work through. But oftentimes we want an instantaneous fix. We want a quick fix for things. How about being fixated with the illusion that comfort can satisfy? How many of us think if, if, if I could just get to a, a new level of comfort in my life, my problems would go away? Let me tell you, it's an illusion. It's an illusion. But we can fixate on our comfort so much only to realize it can't really satisfy. Ever fixate on expecting more? You ever fixate on pain that's really, really hard and the way that we deal with it, the way that we're enthralled with our pain and try to fixate on pain is this. We pretend it didn't happen. We pretend it isn't happening. We pretend that if I just do random things, I can cover up my pain. So we fixate on that. We don't want to deal with our pain. We just want it to go away. Don't want to admit it. We want to try to do something to mask it and cover it up. But yet you know, you know that pain is still there. How about this? We fixate on if I feel good, then I think things are good. It's not true, is it? But man, we can fixate on that. If I feel good, then things are good. If I don't feel good, then man, Things are going to be bad, and don't mess with me. Sometimes we can let our emotions dictate our lives. In other words, that's what we can fixate on, how we're feeling. We can fixate on being liked and wanted as more important than telling the truth. We can fixate on living superficial lives, not really having any friends, rather than living an honest life. We have to be truthful. It's easier to be shallow. See, it's always easier to drift through life, isn't it? It's easier to drift. See, all these ways are subtle ways of Jesus plus something else. I don't mind talking about Jesus. I just need Jesus and my comfort all the time. I, I just need Jesus and no pain. I need Jesus and my control. And I really love Jesus when I feel like he's giving me more control over my own life. Rather than the reality that to have more Jesus means that we lose control. We come to grips with the fact we didn't really have it in the first place. You see, 
we should be enamored with the one who was bruised and battered and rejected and forsaken and killed. That's what we should be captivated with. That's what we should be enamored by. The one who was bruised and beaten and rejected and killed. Not because we're supposed to be enamored with a bloody Jesus, but the fact that Jesus did this for you and me. You get it? To be enamored with the one who was forsaken for me. He was willing to be bruised and beaten for me because he loved me. Jesus is probably the only one in your life who would be willing to die ultimate death because he loved you, because he wanted to see you again, because he wanted to bring you to have new life. You see, we should be enamored with God becoming man, going to the cross, enduring what justice requires, rising from the dead to deliver us from the fear of acceptance, from the fear of being controlled by money. Jesus rose from the dead to free us from the fear of thinking that we're going to mess up our children, because we are. Jesus has died and rose from the dead to free us from that, to free us from being enamored and captivated with our career, so that we can see him through our career. So that we understand he controls our money. He controls our acceptance. We should be enamored with him. You see, Jesus did all of this. He died and rose again to pay the penalty that we deserve. He did all that not so, so that he would make us employees where we just are spending, around, spending our time running errands for him. He died and rose from the dead, not to make us employees that run errands for him, not to put an incredible amount of responsibility on our lives that we are responsible to change the world. That's not it. Jesus didn't die and rise from the dead to put that responsibility on us, that we're supposed to change the world. He's, he's pretty good at that. He died and rose from the dead to make us sons and daughters of the king who have an inheritance of the new heavens and the new earth. He died and rose from the dead so that we would become like him, so that we would live for the life of the world, so that we would be ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. Remember, Christ provides a weekly opportunity for us to fixate on him. A time where we have to come to grips with who we really are and who he really is. Gives us an opportunity every week to always be drifting back to him. And that's what brings us to the table. <laughs>